welcome to this edition of Labor Vision. I'm Bob Delaney, Executive Director of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. Labor Vision, a production of the Institute, focuses on topics of importance to working Rhode Islanders. We hope you enjoy this edition. Thank you for watching Labor Vision. My name is Erica Hammond. Uh, we are coming from our at-home studios. And uh, joining me today is Jay Walsh of the AAUP at URI. Thank you so much for joining us, Jay. Good morning, Erica. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm happy we're able to do this from our at-home studios and uh, so we can keep getting updates from all of you guys in the labor movement. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having me. So you want to tell us a little bit, I know you were just on um, probably a few months ago now, you joined us on Labor Vision, but can you give us a brief introduction of your union, just so the folks who are watching this for the first time know who you represent? Sure. URI AUP represents all of the full-time faculty at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, Tenure-track faculty, lecturers, senior lecturers, teaching professors, clinical faculty, research professors, and we... Um, uh, take care of the collective bargaining, uh, mm -hmm. the relationship between the, the faculty and, and management. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about how this COVID-19 crisis has been affecting your members? Or, well, let's start from the beginning. I know that last time I saw you was at the governor's bill signing of the minimum wage bill uh, back mm -hmm. on March 10th. And we were talking a little bit about this. You were expressing some of your concerns and I know you were trying to talk to the governor about that. Can you Tell, start from there. Sure. Um, that week, um, March 9th, was the beginning of spring break at URI. And prior to spring break, I had asked the university uh, a couple of times, what are we going to do about uh, students returning from spring break? And at, prior to spring break, it, uh, the university wasn't inclined to do anything. At, at that point, nobody in the state had begun to do anything yet. Um, on March 9th, uh, I want to give a shout out to Matt Weldon at the Department of Labor and Training. I reached out to DLT and asked them if they could tell me about the age of the workforce at URI compared to the age of the workforce in the state and uh, specifically concerned about faculty who were 60 and over. Uh, because that was the big concern early on that it was COVID-19 was impacting older people more than uh, the younger population. And uh, what Matt, the data Matt was able to give me combined URI, RIC, and CCRI, all employees at those institutions, not just mm -hmm. faculty, but uh, the percentage of people that work in public higher education in Rhode Island is almost double uh, uh, you know, the people that are 60 or over is almost double at public higher ed than it is uh, in other areas of employment wow. in the state. I think uh, statewide, the, the workforce is uh, 20, 20 or 22% of the workers are 60 or over statewide. Okay. And I think in public higher education, it's uh, 42%. That are 60 or over. Mm -hmm. So uh, that caused me greater concern 
and um, that day I had reached out to the university in on March 9th and and uh, you know informally it asked a couple of questions about what are we going to do what are we going to do and the university had said well what, what you know I was reported back to me was that we don't have any plans right now um, so then I spoke to the governor on uh, March 10th when she was there at uh, the Rhode Island AFL-CIO to sign the minimum wage bill and I expressed my concern that the, the workforce at in public higher ed uh, was significantly older than the rest of the workforce and I was concerned about 15,000 students coming back to campus from wherever they were and bringing um, back whatever uh, viruses they may have caught right. and the governor told me that she would look into it um, that same day, I wrote a formal letter to the president of the university um, requesting uh, a meeting to discuss all the different plans. That afternoon, the president invited me down for a, a meeting um, along with our union president, and uh, they made the decision that day that uh, they would all teaching for the spring semester um, up until at that, I think that time they decided for, you know, it was a couple weeks at a time. Right. Uh, would would be taught remotely, mm -hmm. and uh, since then we've I've had uh, almost daily conversations with the, either the president or the provost, uh, the vice provost, um, making sure that uh, the faculty's interests and needs are involved in all the decisions at the university. Okay, and so since that decision, no on-campus classes will be taught through the semester, right? Yeah, um, so the entire semester is going to be taught remotely, mm -hmm. and last week uh, the university announced that all of the summer sessions are going to be taught remotely. Wow. So uh, there are, la as of last Friday, there were somewhere in the neighborhood 450 courses offered during the summer, wow. and uh, half of them were already scheduled to be online courses, and half of them were going to be face-to-face -face courses. Okay. So now the, the faculty is in the process of uh, determining which face-to-face -face courses can be delivered remotely in the summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the university is working with faculty to figure out what types of courses might be offered this summer uh, in light of the COVID crisis that had not um, previously been considered. For example, right. you know, a, a class on, uh, you know, conflict resolution in the workplace in the middle of a pandemic. That yeah. could be a class this summer, you know, or right. managing managing prison populations in a in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those sorts of things could be classes that come up now available in the summer that right. were were not uh, thought of a month ago. Right. Those are definitely things that people would be interested in taking part in too, because amidst all of this, I mean, I know from our Leadership for a Future class, when we start thinking about community action projects, we had so many ideas and then this crisis hit and those mm. ideas have all shifted significantly because now we're all thinking about this and how, right. could we, how could we be doing this better or how could we be right working on this better? Right. That's interesting. And, I know that there's some faculty that you mentioned who are um, doing work to combat this crisis. Can you talk about some of those faculty in the different um, industries? I know there was maybe engineering and the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I'm sure there are many more than I could 
than I'm even aware of, but a couple that stand out uh, in my mind is in the pharmacy program. Um, faculty have been uh, producing hand sanitizer in the labs at the university. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the hand sanitizer has been distributed to um, state offices or state agencies to be able to, to use. Um, some engineering faculty have developed a, a rapid response team to try mm -hmm. to figure out ways that they can um, address some of the needs of the general public. And I think some of those engineering faculty are, are trying to figure out ways to develop um, affordable and reliable ventilators. Um, some of the faculty are examining uh, alternatives to handkerchiefs and t-shirts for face masks. Interestingly, yeah. uh, and I'm not sure, you know, where they are in terms of their experiments and, mm -hmm. and being able to share it, but um, you know, they, they've done some experiments on how, how much breathing it takes for very fine particles like COVID-19 to get through an N95 right. mask. Mm -hmm. And um, then they've tested, you know, towels and T-shirts and handkerchiefs. And interestingly, they've somebody came up with the idea of, of paper mache masks hmm. uh, because everybody can make paper mache at home with flour and water and paper. Right. And uh, I think their initial research is that paper mache is as effective as N95 masks. Wow. Um, and so I think they're working on making sure that that's accurate and developing right. um, some resources on how to create paper mache masks so that really the general public ha have it as an option. Wow. And in a lot of the decision making that's gone into this process, um, how has it been maintaining a relationship with the university management um, in all of these decisions? It's. Uh, almost universally it's been we've had a very very good relationship with uh, the university president and the university provost and the and uh, the vice provost of academic affairs and um, the university operates differently than many other workplaces uh, there is all the academic matters in terms of coursework and graduation requirements and grading policies are determined by the faculty senate which in the faculty senate are faculty that are elected by their colleagues to make the rules that relate to academic issues and when other universities around the country started changing their grading policy to pass fail um, students at uri requested that and you know the university manual uh, that URI has uh, been around for 60, 70 years. And, you know, changes to grading policy are usually deliberated for a long time mm -hmm. and deliberated in person by a you know, large body of faculty. And um, the chair of the faculty senate, Aram Nasser Sharif, and the uh, vice chair, Megan Echevarria, uh, did an amazing job of uh, gathering concerns from faculty and figuring out ways that they could uh, amend the current manual to allow students to 
opt into a satisfactory or unsatisfactory grading system. So with the recognition that, you know, students aren't just impacted by learning remotely, but they're impacted, their lives are impacted the same way all of our lives are impacted, mm -hmm. you know. Right. Um, maybe we were in different living conditions. Maybe we have family that are ill. Maybe, we, you know, our family is uh, laid off or we don't have a source of income. Maybe we're struggling to get food and necessities. Um, and so the, the faculty did an amazing job at being able to address the students' needs there. Um, you know, the times that communication is broken down, I think it's been accidental. Yeah, I think it's been that people have um, probably trying to uh, act with good faith to share information with faculty, mm -hmm. but maybe um, shared it prematurely or shared it before decisions were actually made, which just occasionally led to confusion. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, those are the, you know, the leaders of the faculty senate and the leaders of the union meet with the president and the provost and we discuss things and we, we come up with a, um, uh, decisions and, and what the university is going to do in, in that uh, the trick is making sure that's communicated clearly to everybody at each step of the way. Right. right. Well, I, it seems like it's, things are running. I don't know how to say this, but it seems like amidst all of this, things are, things are getting done and things are running smoothly. Um, in a crisis like this with so much uncertainty, you don't know necessarily how things are going to work out or how things will play out. And there's a lot of, anxiety and right the unknown um so i think that you guys are all doing a really great job there um working yeah, it's, this really difficult time it's really it's really uh it's really difficult mm -hmm. and it's but it's also pretty amazing um that the faculty are able to do this the types of things that they're able to do right. um, you know probably a lot like k-12 to teachers you know um faculty are struggling with teaching from home. Um, mm -hmm. I'll give you, you know, a couple of examples. I have a, a faculty member who's a single mom and has a, a daughter under the age of eight and, um, you know, is trying to figure out how to, to be able to do her work and be on calls like this and, right. and take care of a, a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, another faculty member who, um, you know, has kids that are, I think, uh, six months and three years old. And, um, you know, he and his partner are together taking care of the kids, but the partner has a job that requires um, producing online content and mm -hmm. for children and um, producing that content for it for children has uh, become high need now because so many students right. are at home. And in order to find peace and quiet, the faculty member's partner is getting up at 4 a.m., sitting in the shower, putting blankets over her head so she can record the content in silence without yeah. the kids around. And yeah. uh, there are, we're fortunate that we are not um, on the front lines like mm -hmm. our 
um, SEIU brothers and sisters or UNAP brothers and sisters or UFCW brothers and sisters yeah. or, um, you know, the, the ripped drivers or the yeah. Brotherhood of Correction Officers, you know, those people are interacting with the public every day and putting themselves at risk. Right. Uh, we're able to do it from our homes, mm-hmm. um, which is keeping us, um, which is, you know, reducing the risk that we have of contracting the virus. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, everybody's struggling one way yeah. or the other. Right. It's not to say there's not still um, difficulties and conflicts. Right. Very right. To overcome. All right. Well, um, I wanted to ask you before we close up, I want to ask you about the pins I see on your sweater. All right. Um, so this pin is for the uh, Irish Citizen Army. Okay. Um, and the backstory to it is that uh, James Larkin was a great labor leader in Ireland and had organized uh, unions around the island of Ireland before they had legal status. And in 1913, James Larkin was organizing uh, workers in Dublin. And uh, part of what he did is organize a lot of sympathy strikes. And he, the employers, got together and decided they weren't going to let James Larkin uh, organize the employees in in Dublin. Uh, he had been successful in Belfast. And so as a preemptive measure, the employers locked out all of the workers in the city of Dublin in 1913. Um, and that led to a lot of fights between uh, the unions and the police and the police were brought in on the employer's side to fight the police uh, to to fight the um, strikers mm-hmm. and the workers and uh, one of the groups that organized to support the workers was the Irish Citizen Army so they mm-hmm. they made up their own army to protect workers against the police and a few years later uh, the leader of the Irish Citizen Army was James Conley, a legendary socialist in Ireland. And a few years later, when the Easter Rising was planned, James Conley was part of the leaders for the Easter Rising and um, helped lead the Rising from the General Post Office. And the, that's the second pin is the Easter Lily, which is oh. worn in I, which is worn in Ireland to commemorate uh, the Ireland's uh, heroic dead and, and martyrs. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> well, I want to thank you also for coming on Labor Vision uh, during such a difficult time. Um, I know you're so busy, um, so I really appreciate you giving us an update and letting us know all the great work that your members are doing at URI. Thank you for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. Stay well. Thank you. You too. Stay positive. Will do. Thanks. <laughs> all right. For all of you who are watching, all of you watching from home, you're watching Labor Vision. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope to see you back here next week. Have a great night. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Labor Vision. We appreciate your input and encourage your comments. Labor Vision can be seen on this channel three times each week: Tuesday at 7 p.m., Thursday at 8 p.m., and Saturday at 5 p.m.